Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amka na unai. Hello, good morning and welcome to Africa, rise and shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figle Nimwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, concern over the security situation in Burundi, MDC leader Morgan Tsangarai leads anti-government march in Harare, and South Sudan rebel leader Rick Machat set to return home. In economics, Anglo-American shareholders urged to reject CEO's pay package and in sports news, Kenya race against time to comply with the World Anti-Doping Agency Code. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. Hundreds of protesters took to the streets of Zimbabwe's capital, Harare, to demand an end to President Robert Mugabe's rule. Zimbabwe opposition leader Morgan Changarai led the protest, urging Mugabe to step down over the worsening economy. The protesters were demanding jobs promised by the ruling ZANU-PF party during its 2013 election campaign pledged as well as transparency on government revenue. Changarai accused the ruling party of mismanaging the economy. We are demanding that President Mugabe please go and have an early retirement and dignified yes. We are saying as a statement that it's time Mugabe listens to the voice of the people yes. and that the people shall rule, the people shall liberate themselves. South African opposition Democratic Alliance leader Musi Maimani will lead a march to the Constitutional Court. The march is part of the party's planned series of protests to highlight the importance of the court's judgment, which found that President Jacob Zuma violated the Constitution and the ruling ANC's refusal to remove the president. Last month, the court found that President Zuma was in breach of his constitutional obligations in his handling of the public protector's report that recommended that he pay back the money spent on non-security upgrades at his private Nkandla home. Maimani spokesperson Mabine Siabi explains. Uh, various forms of mass mobilization as well as protests to ensure that the people of Africa know the magnitude of the constitutional court judgment that stated that Jacob Zuma had violated his oath of office as well as the constitution and also to ensure that uh, pressure is put on government as well as ANC to remove Jacob Zuma from office. Liberia's teachers have threatened to strike over plans to privatize the country's crumbling primary schools. The president of the National Teachers Association of Liberia says they're ready to express their discontent over the subcontracting of education to a private firm. Bridge International Academies. The privatization scheme has also been condemned by the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Education, Kishore Singh, who called it completely unacceptable and in violation of Liberia's legal and moral obligations. 
The Egyptian Interior Ministry has warned of legal action against participants in demonstrations against Cairo's decision to hand over the control of two strategic Red Sea islands to Saudi Arabia. In a statement, the ministry called on Egyptians not to get carried away by calls for protests. Egypt's government has been under fire since it announced on Saturday that the islands of Tehran and Sanafir fall within the territorial waters of Saudi Arabia as stipulated in a maritime border agreement signed between Cairo and Riyadh the previous day. Countries around the world have been urged by the UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon to take more concrete steps to prevent terrorist organizations from financing their operations. Ban says ISIL terrorist group, which is active in Syria, Iraq and elsewhere, has become adept at raising funds through what it calls nefarious activities. Member states need to take more concrete steps to stop fundraising through the smuggling of oil and gas the illicit trade of cultural artifacts, kidnapping for ransom, and donations from abroad. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902 on this Friday, April the 15th, the 106th day of 2016 with 260 days left in the year. As Burundi descends further into violence, killings, abductions, torture and arbitrary arrests have become a daily occurrence. The crisis erupted in April 2015 when President Pierre Nkurunziza announced he would seek a controversial third term in office. His decision triggered widespread public protest, which the police brutality repressed. Armed opposition groups have also increasingly resorted to violence. For more on this, Jose Khodinake spoke to Karina Tatiakin, senior researcher on Rwanda and Burundi at Human Rights Watch, who was in Burundi recently. The situation is really tense and Burundians are living in, in fear at the moment, especially in, in the capital, Bujumbura. As you will recall, since last year, ever since President Nkurunziza announced he was going to stand for third term in the elections, the situation has been descending into violence. There have been hundreds of killings, and more recently, the pattern of violence is changing. So the last time I was there with my colleagues, we discovered a, quite an alarming new pattern of disappearances since the end of last year with people just going missing they're taken away by police or intelligence services to an unknown destination and then the families don't hear anything more there have also been a large number of arrests many of them apparently quite arbitrary targeted particularly against people 
that the authorities suspect are opponents and also some really brutal cases of torture in detention. Now, torture is not a a new phenomenon in Burundi, but it's really reaching a new level in terms of the cruelty and the brutality of the methods being used. But now tell us about um, you, that is Human Rights Watch, going into Burundi, of course, obviously to investigate human rights abuses in that country. What are the dangers of, of doing this? What are the dangers of investigating these rights abuses in Burundi? Or rather, how do you go about investigating in Burundi? Well, it is a very delicate situation because, of course, the government doesn't want people to be investigating human rights abuses. We do always, of course, have to go into the country officially, so we, we let the government know that we're there. We're not operating in a, in a clandestine way, and indeed we always seek meetings with the Burundian government. But when we're carrying out our research, we have to be very careful, particularly for the security of the people that we interview. It's becoming more and more difficult in Burundi to persuade people to speak because of this huge fear. People are really afraid of of, of testifying. We found there are many people who who want to speak but who are really scared of what will happen to them if they are seen talking to a human rights investigator or if they're seen talking to a, a journalist. So we had to go to some length to try to take precautions to persuade people and to explain to people that all our interviews are confidential. Now, you've been speaking about this feeling of fear among Burundians, particularly in Bujumbura. Is, is this fear pervasive even in the rural areas? Did you get that? Well, on this occasion, we we didn't have the opportunity to go to the rural areas. But from our information that we gather from not only Bujumbura, people also are frightened in, in other parts of the country. Even though the violence has been most intense in the capital, there have also been cases of killings and other abuses in the provinces. And particularly the provinces that are bordering Rwanda or Congo are especially tense. What people were telling us as well is that they feel there's a a heightened level of surveillance by the intelligence services. People feel they're being watched, that they can't move around freely. Everyone is suspicious of each other. So it's not only fear, it's also this distrust that has been sown in the population. Now, Human Rights Watch has also said that armed opposition groups have also been responsible for abuse. Now, in what way would they be responsible? Well, indeed, and the armed opposition groups, in fact, have been getting more and more violent since last year. You'll recall that there was a a failed coup d'etat last May. Since then, some of the military officers who, who led that coup attempt have formed an armed opposition group in exile. There are, in fact, a number of opposition groups, and some of these groups have been killing people. They've been targeting military. They've been targeting police, and they've also been targeting members of the ruling party, civilians. There have been cases of killings of members of the ruling party and killings of these people who are known as Imbonerakure. These are members of the Youth League of the the ruling party. So on on both sides, there have been attacks and, and serious abuses. And that was...
Karina Tetsiakian, Senior Researcher on Rwanda and Burundi for Human Rights Watch, on the line from London, speaking to Khusiko Tingake. Zimbabwe's opposition leader Morgan Tsangarai has led thousands of protesters in a march calling for President Robert Mugabe to step down. Tsangarai says President Mugabe has failed to resolve the national economic crisis and the worsening poverty. A high court order overturned a police ban on the march, enabling protesters to go ahead peacefully. The march follows claims by President Mugabe that billions of dollars in revenue from the country's Marange diamond mining operations are unaccounted for. Shanganyoka has more. Opposition supporters have taken their discontent to the streets of the capital, Harare. Thousands of Movement for Democratic Change members, trade union and student representatives say they no longer want President Mugabe's 36-year-long rule. They accuse him of lack of accountability. Movement for Democratic Change Secretary General Douglas Monzora. We have a problem of poverty. We have a problem of uh, unaccountability. We have $15 billion, which Mugabe does not know where it is. This protester says, when a person has lived with you for a long time, they no longer treat you with respect. They begin to dismiss you like a dog. The marches led by Morgan Changirai are concerned about the deteriorating economy. They also want the two million jobs that President Mugabe promised them in the 2013 elections. It's been a difficult few years for the ruling party since then. Instead of creating jobs, tens of thousands of workers have lost employment and companies are closing. The economy is slowing down as a result of lower mineral prices, drought and investors' mistrust of President Mugabe's policies. Why we want change in Zimbabwe is because the guy is too old and so there's some young tax who are using him uh, to gain power and to control our economy and to loot money. President Mugabe has said he will stand for the 2018 elections when he'll be 94. Opposition leader Morgan Changirai will represent his party, but he's failed to unseat President Mugabe in four previous elections. President Mugabe, please go and have an early retirement and dignify We are saying as a statement that it's time Mugabe listened to the voice of the people. Some had written off Morgan Trangirai after his shock defeat at the polls, but with a new formidable opposition party led by former Vice President Joyce Mujuru, observers think Trangirai is slowly transitioning back to retain his support. Alexander Rusero is an analyst. This uh, march now is a revival of the lost mojo of the MDC. It's a revival of the bygone politics of uh, the yesteryear era. So it's likely to energize, it's likely to revive the adrenaline of opposition politics, of grassroots politics, because there has been a lot of despondence on the part of the people, on the part of the grassroots. Many doubt that President Mugabe will pay any attention to the protesters. However, the MDC says it's planning for more protests around the country until President Mugabe leaves office. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare. Some Zimbabwean nationals living in South Africa have handed over a memorandum of demands to the Zimbabwean embassy in Pretoria. They are demanding to be granted the right to vote in the diaspora in the upcoming 2018 general elections. Pumzlim Langeni reports. These Zimbabwean nationals want to be eligible to vote in foreign countries. 
The last general elections in Zimbabwe were held in 2013 when Robert Mugabe was re-elected as president. Spokesperson for the Zimbabwe People First, Lawrence Mavaire, says it's unfair that millions of people in the diaspora are contributing millions of dollars to the Zimbabwean economy, yet they can't exercise their right to vote. Because as we see today, we, we have contributed close to $900 million as the diaspora to Zimbabwe, which formulates about 45% of what the country receives in receivables. You can accept our money, but you can't accept our votes. Something's wrong there. We're not here on holiday. We're here to work. But the challenge we have is that we do not have documentation. We are causing unnecessary problems for the South African government. They need to go and beef up police forces to look for us. Yet the solution is right in front of us. They should be responsible for giving Zimbabwean documents, not the South African government. Among their demands that the embassy be accountable for undocumented citizens who are currently in South Africa. The majority of Zimbabweans are undocumented and they strongly believe Zimbabwe should play a role in making sure that its citizens do not suffer in a foreign land. These are the views of some of the disgruntled Zimbabweans who say they want to vote for change. The government of Zimbabwe needs to give us the right to vote in South Africa with other fellow Zimbabweans so that we can contribute to them. Therefore... We need the right to vote. If we are given that opportunity of voting here in South Africa or in UK, wherever we are, we will change our country. As women, we need to be home. But I can't be at home right now at my place because I can't afford. We are here in South Africa, not because we want. Now you are trying to get Islam in home affairs. You, you spend four months or five months or three months or two weeks, but nothing. Nothing get it, so that's why you are crying. The embassy is supposed to explain. Constitutional law expert Professor Shadri Guto from the University of South Africa says the Zimbabwean constitution doesn't state whether citizens outside the country are eligible to vote or not. He says it's unlikely that the government will make changes to the legislation to accommodate those living in South Africa. As long as ZANU-PF under Mugabe uh, is in power, whether they will allow that because they fear that most of the people outside of the country are people who have gone into either economic immigrants who have left the country to go outside for that reason. And a lot of them are political exiles and therefore are unlikely to vote for uh, ZADOPF. So it is unlikely, in my view, to think that it will succeed. The Zimbabwean embassy has undertaken to respond to the memorandum within 14 days. in Pretoria. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, the situation on the ground has changed dramatically since the cessation of hostilities between rival parties in Syria began more than six weeks ago, but violations are becoming more frequent. That's according to the UN resident humanitarian coordinator in the country, Yaqub al-Hilo. He says over the last two weeks, the frequency of these 
ruptures and incidents has increased. An estimated 13.5 million Syrians are in need of some form of assistance and protection. Al-Hilo explains. Indeed, things have changed quite dramatically for the people because when guns go silent, that immediately translates into a number of positive things for people. Uh, They are able to move around and go about their daily activity in a much more normal way, although there is a lot of abnormality because of the length of this conflict in Syria that has now entered its sixth year. So um, the last few weeks have indeed been very encouraging. Uh, Yes, there have been ruptures and there have been incidents and there have been violations of the uh, agreement uh, to cease hostilities. And um, although this is not unusual, it happens in any kind or uh, time of such agreement, what is concerning for us on the ground is that over the last two weeks or so, the frequency of these ruptures, these incidents, has really increased. What are the most pressing humanitarian needs right now? Everything. We have this year in Syria 13.5 million Syrians who are in need of some form of humanitarian assistance and protection. And that is ranging from vaccinating the under fives to providing shelter to the displaced, to providing food and clean water, to provide education support, health care, to provide job opportunities, and to help families that have been displaced more than once because of the dynamic nature of this conflict, to actually be able to retake charge of their lives, and not only by relying on uh, relief, but to try and strengthen their resilience at the community level, uh, but also at the individual uh, family level. This is what is keeping us busy every day in Syria. This was a country that was on its way to become a high-middle-income country. Today, 80%, 80-plus percent of the Syrian people are poor. They live on less than $2 a day. And that's why the needs are huge. And because of the length of this crisis, their ability to cope has also been highly eroded. The World Humanitarian Summit is coming up. In what ways can the UN be creative in bringing or helping the Syrian people? when you look at the nature of some of these conflicts around the world and the viciousness with which they are perpetrated, that is what world leaders coming to the summit must really focus on, addressing the root causes of this human suffering that is only increasing in many parts of the world, and also look at ways to make better the systems and the mechanisms that we have at our disposal to respond to these crises when they erupt. We seem to be overwhelmed as a system, not just the United Nations, but the entire humanitarian system, because of the scale, the frequency, and the number of these crises around the world. That needs to be tackled. What needs to be tackled also is how do we fund these humanitarian responses, because the system that we have now to fund seems to be either approaching a breaking point or has broken already. Because for the last several years, you would see appeal after appeal coming out to respond to only the basic of needs, but you would not find it funded for more than 50%. And that is, to me, suggestive of the fact that the system is either overwhelmed or has come to a breaking point. This is another area where I hope world leaders, uh, when they come to the summit next month, 
we'll be looking at how to actually overhaul the system of funding and financing humanitarian responses, but also, perhaps more importantly, addressing the root causes for these human miseries. And that was Yakub El Hilo, UN Resident Humanitarian Coordinator in Syria, and he was speaking to UN Radio's Jocelyn Sambira. A meeting on security challenges has begun in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. The meeting is being held by the Munich Security Conference, a leading international platform for dialogue on foreign and security policy. Koleta Wanjohi has more. Sixty leaders and experts on security issues from Africa, Europe and the United States of America are meeting in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, to discuss security-related challenges. Their meeting is being held by the Munich Security Conference, a leading international platform for dialogue on foreign and security policy founded five decades ago. The chairman of the Munich Security Council, Ambassador Wolfgang Ischinja, says that it is high time Europe realized that dealing with Africa is more vital, especially on security concerns. The dimension of the terrorist threat need to be assessed correctly, need to be discussed jointly by Africans and Europeans, we can no longer isolate ourselves from each other. If there is not going to be successful uh, fighting of terrorism in Africa, it's going to arrive in Europe um, uh, with great certainty. Critical issues at the heart of the two-day debate include the management and prevention of refugee flows, the joint fight against terror and extremism, the cooperation in international peace operations, the development of Africa's regional security architecture, as well as the strengthening of local governance structures, particularly in the health, justice and security sectors. The chairman of the Munich Security Council, Ambassador Wolfgang, adds, As you know, a significant number of refugees have arrived in Western Europe, in particular also in my own country, in Germany. Um, And um, it is also clear that our capacity to absorb additional large refugee numbers in Europe, our capacity is not unlimited, to put it diplomatically. We need to discuss how to handle conflicts, how to prevent them, how to terminate them, how to work uh, with refugees and for refugees, um, how to make sure that refugees do not need to transfer their lives to other continents um, as they flee from disaster and, uh, and, and the threats of military conflict. Um, we need more, not less, European-African cooperation. This is the first time that this Munich Security Conference is being held in Africa. Coletto Enjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. The first round of informal dialogues with, with, with declared candidates for the UN's top job concluded with submissions from two former presidents of the General Assembly and the current administrator of the UN Development Program. The interaction, which for the first time in the history of the UN, allowed member states to ask questions of candidates seeking to be the next Secretary General before the matter goes behind closed doors in the Security Council. That process is only expected to begin by the end of July. Show in Brass Peace reports. Helen Clark is the current number three in the UN system as administrator of the UN Development Programme and the first elected female Prime Minister of New Zealand. 
I have never been an establishment candidate for anything. I have come from the outside of everything I've done, from a rural background to urban settings, uh, as a woman breaking into a man's world, which was politics in my country, uh, as a woman becoming the first uh, elected prime minister, the first uh, woman appointed as administrator of UNDP. I don't think in all honesty anyone could see me as an establishment candidate because I've come from out of the box and I'll always be a bit out of the box. Listen to my exchange with Helen Clark at the end of her briefing to member states. You talk about the value of this open process, what of its impact? And I wonder as a candidate for Secretary General, what are your thoughts on perhaps a straw poll in the General Assembly after this this process so as to really have an impact on the final decision that will be made by the Security Council. Would you be open to that? Obviously there's a lot of voting going on within the Security Council. Uh, then the, the General Assembly uh, gets to vote. Uh, but it's for member states to address. I've come forward on the basis of the process as we know it. I welcome it being uh, opened up in the way that it has because I think transparency is important. Uh, but you know, let the member states decide what's the best way to go. Former Serbian Foreign Minister Vuk Jeremic, who was president of the 67th session of the General Assembly and, at just 40, is the second youngest candidate out of the nine declared. I ask for the honour of serving you again, guided by three overarching convictions. First, that ensuring more robust multilateralism represents the strongest safety net against the perils we face in our times. Second, that a revitalised United Nations should be the centrepiece of global governance. And third, that the UN's existing resources must be used more effectively so that the organization can deliver the results demanded by its membership and in the national community at large. Former Macedonian Foreign Minister and the President of the 62nd session of the General Assembly, Sirjan Kerim, reminded member states about the unofficial principle of geographic rotation, which calls for an Eastern European candidate to replace Ban Ki-moon. The Eastern European group and the uh, I belong to this group, has made very clear on various occasions that it firmly believes, and it shared it with all the memberships and member states, it's its turn now for the position of Secretary General of the United Nations. It has a historic meaning. It's not only a matter of respecting the principle of rotation. It has a historic meaning because all of the states of the Eastern European group are member states since the foundation of this organization. The Security Council is expected to present a candidate to the General Assembly for a vote by September with a final decision expected by October. I'm Sherwin Bricepees in New York. Headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, hundreds of protesters took to the streets of Zimbabwe's capital, Harare, to demand an end to President Robert Mugabe's rule. Liberia's teachers have threatened to strike over plans to privatize the country's crumbling primary schools. And today marks the 20th anniversary of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was set up to deal with the human rights atrocities of the apartheid regime. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you, Anne. Let's go back in time to today in the year 2000. The first victim of the land invasions in Zimbabwe, David Stevens, is murdered. Stevens was shot dead by squatters occupying his land. He was the first white farmer to be killed in an ongoing land confrontation involving so-called war veterans backed by President Robert Mugabe's ruling ZANU-PF party. Joseph Winter tells us more. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Pan-Africanist Movement Deputy President Babini Tame says the late former PAC President Clarence Makwetu was an exemplary leader who tried to reunite warring factions in the party. He was speaking at Makwetu's memorial service in Kofimvaba in South Africa's Eastern Cape Province. The PAM broke away from the PAC in 2008. Speakers at the service called on the PAC to deal with its internal problems and forge unity. Ngululeko Nyembezi reports. Political organizations and PAC veterans have called for unity and the rebirth of the Pan-African Congress to honor the great political icon and former president of PAC, Clarence Makwetu. Makwetu was the president of the PAC until 1996. In 2008, he joined a splinter group, the Pan-Africanist Movement. Speakers at the memorial service condemned the leadership squabbles within the PAC and the formation of splinter groups. PAM Deputy President Babinita Messas Makwetu was a political giant whose teachings are worth following. He has urged the PAC to deal with the internal divisions so that those who want to rejoin it can do so. Well, that is very easy because PAC is my organization. Before I joined the PAC, I didn't know anything. So to go back to the PAC, there is nothing wrong in that, provided that the problems are being solved. Because even Makwetu, before he left, he was trying to bring us together so that we can form up a unity again. We can actually go back to the PAC. Dame has praised the Eastern Cape Provincial Government for declaring Makwetu's funeral a special provincial official funeral. I'm very much happy because Makwetu uh, was not a leader of this country. He was a leader of the Pan-Africanist Congress, but he has done a lot for this country. I therefore congratulate him. For getting this, and I also uh, 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 join hands to say to Comrade Zuma and others that they have done a very good thing to me, to the members of the PAC, PAM, and the family members. PAC Provincial Chairperson Mzwane Lonyonzo says the late Clarence Makwetu deserved the best to restore his legacy. Nyonzo believes that dissolving parallel structures in, in the PAC and, and bringing back splinter formations is the way to go. The message is that all factions of the PAC, in the name of Comrade Makwetu, in honor of our former president, must unite. In fact, 
we should not only unite, these factions must dissolve, dissolve and get under one roof. And in that conference, they must chart the way forward how to unite the, the organization, the PAC. We've been a, a laughing stock for a long time. We have a great history. We have, we have struggling credentials. Congress of the People, NEC member Mzwandi Lebula says the political ideology of the PAC has been relevant as far as land is concerned. Nobody can say we have a complete majoritarian claim over our land as landowners, as people that were actually robbed of their own land. And that's a proof. Nobody's denying that. So I would say openly, and what is left from the PAC and other structures that are born out of majority of Africans in here, on their non-racial kind of basis, they should strive towards equal ownership of all resources, including the land. PAC veterans has described Mkwetu as the true revolutionary leader of the movement. They say his contribution in the liberation strategy is immeasurable. Speaking on behalf of the family, Vuyo Mkwetu says Clarence Mkwetu was not happy about the land issue in South Africa. Till his death, he was insatisfied about the land question. That uh, he felt that uh, people have been had been given a, a freedom to rule the country, but the land remained in white hands. Clarence Mkwetu will be buried at the Oita village on Saturday after a funeral service on his Kwaju farm in Kofimvaba. I am Glule Kunyembezi, Kofimvaba, Eastern Cape. South Africa's main opposition party, the DA, has called on government to declare the drought in the country a national disaster. The party says this will allow the release of emergency relief funds to farmers. At a media briefing in Parliament yesterday, the party said the drought has had a devastating effect on more than 34 million people around the country. Joseph Masia reports. The DA says it is expected that crop yields for 2016 will be 28% lower than in 2015. It says the production of white maize will decrease by 35%, while groundnuts will go down by 46%. The party says, however, that this estimate is based on the planted area and does not take into account that most of those will not have any crops. DA Shadow Minister of Agriculture, Annette Stein. If we don't assist farmers with, with uh, loans or, or anything else um, that, that they can plant again when the season starts. We're going to have a longer-term effect of this drought because at the moment we're having a food crisis because of the drought. The next thing that's going to happen is we're going to have a food crisis because our farmers can't plant or produce. It says food prices have risen steeply over the past couple of months and will continue to do so over the course of the year. DAMP Karen DeCock says increasing social grants will benefit especially poor women. This is money well spent. It's given directly into the hands of the poor, most often women. They spend this money on food, they spend it on energy costs, they spend it on transport costs. It is not wasted, as is often thought. And the benefits of this grants to children especially is well documented. You have various health benefits, you have educational benefits, you have social benefits and you have even have economic benefits. And contrary to popular perception, it decreases dependency. Another MP, Henro Clear, told journalists that informal traders have also been severely impacted by the drought. He says his own research has established that many vendors have stopped trading because their clients can't afford their wares and farmers no longer send their products to the markets as they can't get their prices. In a recent oversight by myself, I went and visited the informal traders. This is this little Omas 
sitting on the corners of the street selling apples out of a box just to keep alive and to, to increase their, their spendable income. And I observed the following, and it's quite frightening. One third of the small businesses associates with have given up their ventures. Of this, almost a third of them um, just disappeared from the streets, according to their colleagues. The turnover of the small business owners still selling their ways have declined by more than um, 20%. That was DAMP Hendro Kruger ending that report by Joseph Musia in South Africa's Parliament. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Let's go back in time to today in 1912. The luxury liner Titanic sank in the North Atlantic of Newfoundland less than three hours after striking an iceberg. About 1,500 people died. And that was today in history in the year 1912. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Hundreds of protesters gathered in Manhattan, New York, to protest an appearance by Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump. While Democrats were debating across the East River in Brooklyn, Trump and other GOP candidates were speaking at a state GOP gala event at Manhattan's Grand Hyatt, with protesters blocking pavements amidst a heavy police presence. New York has become a focal point in the race for the White House, with the state holding a crucial primary on both sides of the ticket next week. Show and Price Peace reports. Donald Trump has been a controversial figure in this election cycle for making statements like this. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. And on Mexicans. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. And with the native New Yorker speaking at a hotel next to the famed Grand Central Station in Midtown Manhattan, the Never Trump movement decided to give him a not-so-New York welcome. Caleb Michael Files was among the protesters. We're out here calling out hatred. I think, you know, we have a candidate for president whose rhetoric is, in, is non-inclusive of the diversity uh, that America's made of. And, uh, you know, as somebody who uh, is gay and, like, is, you know, just getting rights over the past couple of years, like, we are built on our, our diversity and what brings us together builds us up. Uh, and Trump just wants to, uh, to take us all down. We are here. We are here. Because we demand a white supremacy free. New York City. The protest brought rush hour midtown traffic to a standstill as Trump's front runner status increasingly becomes a concern to many here. I don't think there's any place for, you know, almost fascism in American politics. I think that's what Donald Trump represents. And I think it is sort of terrifying seeing the surge in, you know, support for Trump. I don't think he can win, but we do have to keep up the struggle because he's awakened all the, the hidden, the people who are afraid to come out as racists and bigots. And, and it's, it was here anyway, but he's emboldened the right wing in the United States. 
Protester Paula Slay says she's unsurprised by the levels of support Republicans have given Donald Trump. I don't think that this is really shocking, to be honest with you. I think that this is just ripping the Band-Aid off of something that has been happening for a couple of years now. He is not, he's a symptom, you know, he's not the cause of all of this. He's just somebody that's bringing into the light what's been going on for quite some time. What what do you think happens in a general election if Donald Trump proves to be the Republican nominee? Oh, well, life as we know it. I mean, I don't want to say all all doom and gloom, but life as we know it will completely change. All the fears that we have that are manifesting itself will come to truth and light. Um, This is just um, a very, very important election on all levels. That wall. Build that wall. Just up the road, a single Trump supporter, Jim McDonald, holding a sign that reads, Build the Wall. You cannot have a country without a real border. You can't have a border which is a welcome mat to anyone who wants to come here from any part of the world. Donald Trump recognizes this. This is why I support Donald Trump. we got to keep fighting. New York City is the epicenter of a blue democratic state. All major positions in government, from the state governor to the senators to the mayor of New York, are all Democrat. In addition, New York City is a melting pot of immigrants from every corner of the globe. And that might explain the sentiment on the streets here, just days away from a crucial primary election for both parties in the state. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. It's 8.45 and we say good morning to Tabi Soluhuku with our economics update. Thanks, Lulu. South Africa's Oak Bay Investments has concluded a 145 million US dollars takeover of Glencore's Optimum Coal Holdings. The finalization of the deal comes as Oak Bay scrambles to restore banking relationships after all four major South African banks cut ties over criticism that its owners, the Gupta family, have undue political influence with President Jacob Zuma. Investor Interest Group ShareSoc says Anglo-Americans' proposed remuneration for Chief Executive Officer Mike Sutifani is too high. The mining giant has sought to offset poor trading conditions with a restructuring plan that has led to a 50% reduction in head office costs and the closure of 20 mines since 2013. Angola state oil company Sonangol says it has found oil and gas reserves in the Kwanzaa Basin that could total 2.2 billion barrels of oil equivalent, including a bloc it, join, it jointly owns rather with BP. Block 24, operated by BP, holds an estimated 280 million barrels of condensate and 8 trillion cubic feet of gas, totaling 1.7 barrels of equivalent Yes. Sonagol says Block 20, which operates, is commercially viable and contains an estimated 139 million barrels of condensate. KCB Bank Rwanda has secured 10 million US dollar loan from International Finance Corporation to support the country's housing sector and small and medium enterprises. The KCB Bank Rwanda Managing Director, Maurice Toritich, says that the money will strengthen the lender's capacity to increase long-term funding to the SME and housing sector. The bank had previously got funds from IFC to support agribusiness. business 
The government of Lesotho is finalizing policies to increase the private sector's participation in the energy sector to feed into the national grid and boost the country's capacity to meet its power needs. This was revealed by the principal energy officer in the Ministry of Energy and Meteorology. The base load requirement measures demand for power during normal usage periods, but demand can rise as high as 150 megawatts during peak times in winter. The U.S. dollar trades at 14.56 in South Africa, 10.68 in Botswana, 9.18 in Zambia, 7.0 British pound, 8.8 euro, gold 1.229 dollars, platinum 9.88 dollars an ounce, brand crude 4.3.87 a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Figilele Nwati. Now, sports update this hour. The Kenyan government is racing against time with a view of clearing all lingering doubts within the IAAF to ensure its athletes participate in the Rio 2016 Olympics. And the government of Kenya is putting in place an anti-doping bill to ensure compliance as required by the IAAF. Reports from Kenya suggest that by Tuesday next week, the anti-doping legislation will become law to deal with athletes who falls behind the cracks in using banned substances to enhance their performance. The IAAF has given the Kenyan government until the 2nd of May 2016 to come up with compliance law or face the wrath of being kicked out of the Rio Olympics. Already Russian athletes have been banned from the upcoming Olympic Games in Rio. Kenyan chef Dimeshon Stephen Foy explains. What was required of us initially Actually, was the government to put in place an anti-doping bill, which is already has gone through the second reading in our National Assembly. And maybe by Tuesday next week, it would have gone through the, all the readings and ready for to be presented to the president for assenting. So that was the only issue that we had pending, and therefore, as a result of that, we were given an extension up to sometimes around 2nd of May. Meanwhile, 70 athletes in Kenya have already qualified for the Rio Olympics and none of the qualified athletes are training overseas. The athletes are busy training at home ahead of the, for the Rio Games. Besides the track and field athletes, the men and women's rugby squads have also qualified for the Olympic Games. Period is still ongoing on. No, we don't have we don't have athletes training abroad. What we have is athletes training locally here. As I, as I speak to you now, in the track and field, we have about 70 athletes who have already qualified for the Olympic Games under Category A. Our rugby teams, both male and female, uh, will be in the Games. Then we have one archer and a boxer who have already qualified. And we have one swimmer who is under category, who has qualified under category B, and we are hoping that maybe by the end of the qualification period, which will be 30th of June, should have been category A. A doping ban handed to former world 800 meters champion Tatiana Adrianova of Russia was overturned on Thursday because the authorities failed to retest her sample in time. 
Adrianova won bronze at the 2005 World Championships in Finland and her sample was deemed clean. When it was retested last year, it showed traces of the banned steroid Stanozolol and she was given a two-year suspension by the Russian Athletics Federation, ARAF. Adrianova's results from 2005 to 7, including her bronze medal, were also annulled. She appealed against the ban at the Court of Arbitration for Sport, ruled in her favor because the limit for retesting samples is eight years. The IAAF governing body will decide next month whether enough progress has been made in reforming Russia's anti-doping operation to allow it back into competition in time to take part at the Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro in August. And Jared Kraus has added his name to the list of swimmers going to the Rio Olympics in Brazil on the fifth day of the South African National Aquatic Championships and Olympic Trials at the Kings Park Aquatic Center in Devon on Thursday night. Kraus came second to claim silver medal in the men's 200 meters breaststroke final, clocking two minutes, 11.65 seconds, just being below the required Olympic time of two minutes. 11.66 Kraus, who will be making his Olympic debut was extremely happy and thanked his coach after qualifying. Thank you very much. Yeah, my thoughts are absolutely incredible right now. Like, the emotions going through my mind are absolutely amazing. And yeah, I'd just like to thank God for the opportunity to let me swim and my coach for all the support and my coach for getting into this far. Cameron van der Berg qualified for his second Olympic event when he won gold medal in the 200-meter breaststroke final, finishing ahead of Kraus. He posted 2 minutes, 10.13, and has also qualified for his main event, the 100-meter breaststroke. A 27-year-old was thrilled with his success, especially after he achieved his personal best. He's also hoping that it will increase his chances of winning another medal in Rio. Uh, a really good time. Uh, my personal best by more than a second. So very happy with that. It was a tough race. Uh, but yeah, just just really happy. The job's done now. So uh, from now, we look forward to getting back in the, in the pool again tomorrow night with the relay. So we want to qualify for that. It's going to be quite tough, but uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, it increases your chances. But yeah, I mean, Turner is not my it's not my main event. I'm, my main events are 50 and 100 meters. So unfortunately, there are no 50s Olympics. So we have to come up and do the Turner. But it's just nice to qualify. It's a bit of a fun uh, event and helps with the 100 a lot. And finally, with golf news, Alex Levy leads the reel of Club Valderrama Open de España into the second round. The twice European Tour winner is five under par after an opening 66 and holds a one-stroke advantage, while the tournament host Sergio Garcia has ground to make up. Nick Dye reports. Levy sparkled in Australia on his last outing, coming close to victory at the Perth International. He's practiced well since returning to Europe, has his support team close at hand, and he's reveled on what is a very tough course despite the most benign of conditions. The Frenchman won better than the defending champion, James Morrison, saying he was an angry young man when he last played Valderrama five years ago. Now he has the discipline and control needed, and he's thrilled to shoot a 67, the same score as leading Spaniard Alejandro Canazares. His compatriot Garcia not totally out of the equation, despite being back at three over par, as only 15 players are bettering par all told. And that's just what news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, full time.
Afrika amka na unai. Big helping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at this hour. Rights groups voice concerns over security situation in Burundi. MDC leader Morgan Tsangarai leads anti-government march in Harare. And South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar set to return home. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today and for the week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutola Magaza and Jane Matebula, technical producer Revelina Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.toronafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277 969 Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Africa is Wanda Baloi with a song titled Happy to Love.